0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Environmental Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jason Newton, Visiting Assistant Professor of History at Cornell University and the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking with Raj Patel. Raj is an activist as well as a research professor at the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin. He's also a senior research associate at the Unit for Humanities at Rhodes University. He writes on food justice and food systems, and his other books include The Value of Nothing, How to Reclaim Market Society and Redefine Democracy, as well as Stuffed and Starved, Markets, Power, and the Hidden Battle for the World Food System. Today, we're here to talk with Raj about a book that he wrote with Jason W. Moore, at the State University of New York at Binghamton, and that book is A History of the World in Seven Cheap Things, Capitalism, Nature, and the Future of the Planet. Unfortunately, Jason couldn't be here with us, but um, we're really glad to have Raj. So Raj Patel, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Jason. Uh, Raj, uh, I wonder if you could begin by telling us a bit about yourself and your background and also how you and Jason got together to write this book.
1: Um, well, I mean, you know, I, I've been doing uh, activism around you know, injustice for decades. Uh, and I, I started in, in the United Kingdom, as you might be able to tell from my accent, uh, and uh, have been uh, you know, tr- trying to figure out... Uh, how practically to address uh, the injustices that capitalism has wrought. Um, and uh, and I've done some of that through uh, organizing with the alter globalization movement and doing things like uh, resisting the World Trade Organization. Uh, I, was, I was one of the thousands of organizers on the streets in Seattle in 1999. Um, and uh, I've been doing work with uh, the international peasant movement, La Vía Campesina, uh, supporting their work um, in a struggle for food sovereignty um, in you know in the U.S. and and around the world. Um, and uh, Jason and I uh, met uh, actually at, at a conference here at the University of Texas at Austin, and you know our, our eyes met over a crowded room, and uh, we fell into a book project together. I mean, we we'd, we'd been uh, plagiarizing each other's work. Uh, in, in, you know, in scholarly and comradely ways for a little while, uh, and it, you know, when, when we when we got together, we realized that, that actually there were ways that we could build on each other's work uh, in ways that would. Produce something fairly unique, we thought, and uh, and I'm you know the the history of the world in seven cheap things is the result.
0: Great. Um, so I'm a historian, and actually, these types of collaborations are relatively rare for historians. So I was hoping before we got into actually the the argument of the book, if you could just talk more about the collaboration process. You know how it worked um, writing a book like this with with two people. Um, and maybe the benefits and the drawbacks?
1: Um, I mean, a, a, a collaboration is always tough, um, but there are uh, ways that we felt, uh, th- th- there were things that we wanted to explore together uh, and ideas that we wanted to delve into. And so r- what, what it was, essentially, it was lots of very, very long conversations on the phone, um, batting around ideas around how, uh, Jason's work with uh, he he had written a paper on four cheap things and um, it, it, it the, 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 there are ways that uh, I was responding to that the, that I wanted to pull out you know particularly ideas around race around gender and around money um, that uh, would have you know that did uh, you know, the the seeds of which were in um, you know the, the the original analysis I think but uh, which absolutely needed to be fleshed out and and Jason was very excited about. That process of, uh, of of delving deeper into into his ideas and into ideas that we shared, for example, on cheap food, uh, which was something that both he and I had written about independently, um, and so it, it was, as I say, lots of long conversations. And then each of us took the lead on chapters that we felt were uh, things that that were sort of pet projects of ours. And then we we. collaborated, uh, you know, swapping things backwards and forwards uh, until we ended up with a a rough draft. And then we had a fantastic line editor at University of California Press. Um, And uh, for, for folk who are outside the world of book writing, um, it may uh, it, it may be surprising to learn quite how valuable the right kind of line editor is. I mean, you know, in, in general, in the publishing world, uh, a, a sort of commissioning editor is the person who says, "Oh, we love what you're doing. Uh, would you write a book for us?" Or you know, so someone who entertains a proposal, which is what we, we shopped around a range of university presses, and we got lots of offers, but we went with University of California because we, we we really liked their editor there and, and the support that they were ready to give us. Um, but we, in in the actual editing, a line editor is sort of a, a godsend, particularly the right one, who can uh, walk through the the steps of the argument in minute detail, in ways that forced us to be to be better scholars. Uh, and so, while you know we we impose this discipline on our students, um, it's also very useful to have someone whose job it is to impo- impose that discipline on us and stop us taking the kind of academic shortcuts that sometimes we. Have, feel like we had the license to do in our in our journal articles, but when we were trying to write something for a, a larger audience, as this book uh, it was intended to be, it was fantastic to have someone who wasn't uh, as deeply steeped in the in the literature as we were, uh, and who forced us to become better scholars. So I, that that may be a little too much detail, Jason, but, but it gives you a sense of um, you know we we had the first draft at the beginning of uh, of the year, we really only had the last you know the final draft by the end of it. It was that was really a good nine months of. Uh, digging and revising and rewriting in order to be able to get to a, a product that we were all happy with.
0: No, that that's great. I don't think it was too much detail. I think um, a lot of the members of the audience are people who have written books or are writing books who would hope to write books. So I think that's that's really helpful. And actually, um, you know, maybe we can actually talk more about the accessibility of the book. And, and I think, you know, after looking at your work and Jason's work, you know, you can definitely tell that that, Um, The tone of this book and the writing style is meant to, um, you know, engage with as broad an audience as possible. You know, just looking at the uh, the title and the the cover of the book here and also, you know, going into the very simple structure of the book, it really seems to speak to non-specialists. Um, is that something that you, I mean, you mentioned that that's something you were trying to do. Um, you know, why why did you think that was so necessary for this project in particular? And maybe at this time, uh, you know, in the history of, of uh, humanity?
1: Well, uh, th- th- thank you for that, Jason. I mean, we we certainly did want to broaden the audience. Uh I mean you know, both Jason and I publish in things like the Journal of Peasant Studies which is a brilliant you know it's it's the the leading journal in in its field of development studies and anthropology. Um but uh not many people read the Journal of Peasant Studies and uh and that that's a shame that we could go into uh perhaps on a, on another uh, interview but but um what we what we really wanted to do was uh, speak to a lot of the things that we were seeing in the movement world um, you know the the yeah, if, if you look at unions for example and you know you're sitting there in the at the ILR school at uh, Cornell and so you're you're steeped in a fantastic union history and so you can see this up front that um actually that the the world of unions is growing in ways that are very exciting and that they're reminiscent of you know, uh, 19th century labor struggles that, that sort of connected reproductive labor with productive labor, with environmentalism, with anti-racism. And while we were seeing a lot of this work on intersectionality, um, what we wanted to do is provide some sort of uh, theoretical uh sort of depth to a lot of the work on intersectionality uh, from the perspective of world ecology. Um, yeah, I mean, there's 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 a, abundant theoretical work on intersectionality already, and we weren't trying to replace that, but we were trying to um, help it get into conversation with work around uh, world ecology and, uh, it, you know, thinking more deeply about how it is that um, the long histories of intersectional organizing against capitalism have their you know, have always been part of how capitalism has advanced and uh, been fought and been resisted, and in turn, how capital- capitalism has modulated um, as it moves through its frontiers. So what, what we were trying to do is say, look, um, it may look like, for example, uh, the movement for black lives in the United States uh, is interested not just in race, but in class and in gender and in climate change and in a range of other things. And that's as it should be, because uh, resistance to capitalism has always been interested in those things. And, you know, it's only been in a a sort of very recent history where uh, environmentalists were over there and labor was over here and um, anti-racist activism was over there, uh, because in general, there's always been a much more capacious and systemic analysis of how capitalism has uh, Transformed the, the the lives of the working class, and uh, what what we were trying to do is sort of point to that history and show how the the modes of resistance of capitalism have always been uh, you know, intersectional. So again, yeah. does, does does that I mean does that get to some some of the I mean certainly that was some of our motivation, and we were hoping to that this book would be uh, useful for organizers and for people thinking thinking through their organizing in ways that that, that might be supportive and helpful.
0: Mm-hmm. And and I think you know. Um... From the the perspective of this book, uh, that that holistic approach and intersectionality is necessary because, um, you know, your depiction of capitalism uh, is is a depiction that uh, shows a force that kind of exploits on many levels and and from all directions. Um, so maybe we can get into the depiction of capitalism in this book um, and the main argument. And I was hoping you could do so through the wonderful example of uh, chicken, the chicken, and, and industrial chicken production, which, which you, you guys, in a brilliant way, really show how, how industrial chicken production encapsulates um, all the problems with, with um, capitalism today
1: right so i mean we, we have a sort of cliff notes three and a half minute viral video of of, of this but um for i think for our purposes it it, it serves us to, to go into a little more depth uh and the argument we're trying to make is uh around first of all we're trying to contextualize what gets called the anthropocene but uh uh, Jason coined the term capitalist scene. I think that that's that's perhaps more accurate because uh, what we wanted to do is suggest that really one of the most uh, important capitalist objects is the chicken nugget, uh, and we uh, make this argument by saying, look, if if you look at. Uh, what today gets called the Anthropocene, um, its markers include things like plastic, uh, because by 2050 there'll be more plastic in the o- oceans than fish, uh, and it will include radioactivity from nuclear weapons tests. But it will also include trillions of chicken bones. Uh, the, you know, the, the 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 common chicken uh, sort of Gallus Gallus domesticus is is the world's most popular bird right now, and that's not. Um, Anything to do with anthropos, it's not to do with humans. It's not a natural and inevitable outcome of humans being humans. It is absolutely a sign of capitalism and uh, the the death that capitalism brings. That there are twelve billion chickens alive at the moment, but not for long, um, because from egg to nugget takes about ninety days, and every, you know, in any given year, uh, about fifty billion birds are slaughtered. Uh, and that that leaves a lot of chicken bones uh, over the you know over the years, and, and chicken demand is going up globally. Uh, now, what we what what we do is use the the story of chicken to talk about these seven cheap things. Uh, And the first and most important cheap thing is the idea of cheap nature, that that we can take uh, the red jungle fowl and breed it so that the modern broiler chicken has breasts so large it can't walk. Um, And that approach to nature, that it's an infinite resource outside of humans uh, and which humans feel free to to borrow and steal from and then throw away things into, that idea of nature as the infinite trash can. is premised on the idea that there's humans on one side and nature on the other society and nature is the sort of great divide that makes itself felt throughout the book uh, And by having cheap nature we feel like yeah, well, we, we can take that chicken. We can mutate it and uh, and do whatever we like but uh, So we have the cheap chicken uh, a gift of free nature uh, a gift of cheap nature rather. now um on top of that, we you know the chicken obviously doesn't become a nugget by itself, it, it, it requires labor. Uh and cheap work is the next uh, uh you know central and important uh cheap thing. Now uh it's it's very interesting that in in you know that the, the manufacture of chicken uh, products in the United States workers are paid incredibly badly. Uh, you know, the, 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 chicken slaughter line is such that, you know, prisoners are, are made to work on it for 25 cents an hour. Uh, and there's a particularly egregious example that we found uh, out about after the book went to press, which was, uh, an example, uh, of chicken uh, executives uh, in Oklahoma, uh, solving two problems at the same time that they, they solved the opioid, opioid epidemic and they solved the problem of not having enough workers to work the night shift, uh, uh, on the chicken production line, by off, uh, opening something called Christian Alcoholics and Addicts in Recovery. It's a recovery center for, uh, to divert um, people who had been convicted of crimes, uh, drug-related crimes, uh, and instead of sending them to jail, they were sent to this opioid uh, treatment facility. Uh, and so, by day, they would pray to Jesus, and by night, uh, they would work on the chicken production line for free, uh, and uh, you know they would suffer horrific occupational injuries, and they would not be compensated for. And they weren't covered by insurance because it was part of the treatment. Uh, and so there was something very interesting about that process, where um, you've got a uh, you know a, 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 a reprisal of the first kinds of colonial work in in uh, in the Americas, where uh, you know when the, the the Spanish colonists came over and enslaved. Uh, Native Americans, what did they do, but, but made them work and then made them pray to Jesus for their salvation. Uh, and we have exactly the same thing going on here uh, in a very 21st century fashion, uh, but in a way that reprises this idea of cheap work, of, of needing to squeeze labor. Um, on top of cheap work, of course, you know what? once people's bodies are broken by the chicken production line, you need cheap care. You need uh, society to bear the costs of uh, you know caring for and producing labor uh, and that's usually incredibly gendered work and we talk about the history of uh, the production of uh, of the household and, and the institution of the modern household and its imposition uh, and it's atomizing of uh, of communities into these family you know these sort of atomic families these nuclear families uh, that uh, in, in which women's work in particular um, is uh, regimented and codified in, in particular ways now uh, on top of that, you need cheap food. Um, you know, part of uh, the, the the sort of bargain, particularly in the United States, of low wages and cheap work is having cheap food. Uh, and uh, we trace how it is that from. You know, workers spending 80, 90 percent of their wages on food, that number's gone way down uh, to, in the United States now. You know, I believe it's about 10 percent of household uh, disposable income is spent on food. Uh, and the, the, you know, again, the, the chicken nugget is uh, cheap food uh, that features in this constellation that, that shores up uh, you know, cheap labor and cheap care. Um, on top of that, you need cheap energy to uh, to, to, to make the you know the, the the production systems run. Whether it's about butane in the the hen houses or about sort of fossil fuel that that allows the. Um, you know, the the machinery of of chicken nugget production to to, to work. Um, You need cheap money uh, because uh, in order to, to, again, for for, for the the sort of oil of this machine to flow, uh, you need low interest loans. uh, And capitalists are very good at securing those loans, whether it's, uh, you know, through in the United States, the Small Business Administration, which provides uh, low interest loans for KFCs, if they're independently owned, they count as small businesses, uh, and low-interest loans, the like of which you and I are not able to access, but which capitalists can, are uh, an integral part to the the, the, the smooth operation of, of this the system. And so, these six cheap things are uh, again nature, work, care, food, energy, money, and then uh, we, we, the, the seventh cheap seventh cheap thing is. Cheap lives. I mean, if you look at who it is that's on the chicken production line, uh, it's predominantly women and people of color, uh, disproportionately women and, and people of color. And that idea of, uh, how it is that certain kinds of bodies are policed and marshaled, um, is, uh, I, you know, as we say that the, the seventh cheap thing that allows certain kinds of people to be disposable and, uh, to, to be policed and monitored in a way that, uh, that, that that secures their compliance in this uh, this broader system of uh of, of of cheap things. And so yeah there we are that so that that's those seven cheap things produce your ultra capitalist chicken nugget.
0: Yeah, exactly. And and what a what a great example. Um and and really captivating. Um but I think you know we went through the seven cheap things there which is great but I think we we actually skipped over cheapness. Um, and how, how you both in this book use cheapness, in my opinion, as an analytical tool. It becomes a tool that, that you can use to examine any number of things across time and space. So do you want to talk about cheapness, that concept?
1: I do. <laughs> Thank you for reminding me about that, Jason. Um, yes, uh, I mean, the, the idea of cheapness is both a way of talking about how capitalism never pays its bills Uh, And capitalism, if if you like, is is a system for avoiding and dodging and postponing and then fixing the crises that come from not paying bills. Um, So, uh, you know, the the way that we use cheapness is to say, look, capitalism is looking for ways to to, to keep labor cheap. And uh, when there is a crisis in uh, the in the availability and manageability of labor, uh, then capitalism will look to fix that problem with something else by making reproductive labor free or by making food cheap or by making energy cheap. And and again, securing new sources of cheap care or cheap energy or cheap, uh, you know, again, cheap money. And so th- there's a sort of constant dance in the various crises that attend capitalism and the way that capitalists try to pack or fix those crises uh, spatially with uh, a you know, resources or a, a cheap thing from somewhere else. And that idea of cheapness is uh, a way both of talking about Uh, the the, the sort of constant search that capitalism is undertaking to find new frontiers through which to uh, fix the the crises that get generated by exploiting resources, humans, uh, and the the web of life, Uh, but also a a way of pointing out that in every one of these cheap things, we are seeing uh, a major crisis looming, Um, Mm -hmm. that uh, whether it's about uh, cheap nature and the the, the climate uh, crisis that we're living through at the moment or cheap labor and the wave of strikes that, that, that are attending uh, this moment of crisis in capitalism or about cheap care and the, the lack of affordability of care around the world and increasing care costs, particularly around health, uh, but around, around a, a range of, of other things. Cheap food is in crisis because of climate change. Again, uh, we're seeing, of course, the energy crisis and uh, you know uh, the the the, the, the crises that, that attend fossil fuels. Uh, we're seeing interest rates at historically low levels and in some cases negative levels um, as a way of sort of patching the crises of capitalism uh, and, so, and so on and so forth. So in, in every one of these cheap, uh, cheap things, we are seeing a crisis blossoming before our eyes. Uh, and it's super important, we think, to be able to, to show how they are both linked together, but how they must be fought um, together as well.
0: Yeah, great. And and I think, you know, what's wonderful about the concept of cheapness is um you know, it, it makes sense uh to a lot of people. It, it a lot of people can understand that concept. Um I use this book um in in the classroom and you know, when when I explain to students, you know, what's the prerogative of a business owner, um it, it they all understand that it's to keep the cost of production cheap so they can have a competitive advantage. Um, And then, you know, from the perspective of the consumer, yeah, we all, you know, many of us like cheap to to buy things cheaply, right? Cheap, low cost goods. Um, and then, you know, from that perspective, we all agree on those factors. Then we can go into the problems with this constant drive to push the cost of production down and push the price of things like chicken nuggets down. And it's a really good starting point for students, I think, um, to, to, to come at it from the angle of cheapness.
1: I mean, and, and again, I mean, that, that was that was sort of the idea here is to, to, to use everyday words, but but to, to try and, and, and be a bit. You know, to, to try and be rigorous about how it is that we're approaching this idea of cheapness um, and to to, to complicate uh, the, the the ways that um, we think about our relationship to uh, cheapness and affordability for sure
0: yeah um, maybe a more difficult um, concept to understand is is how you both use the term uh, frontiers in in this book would you mind going over that
1: sure uh, so I mean the the, the, the the character that we use to, to sort of you know, to, to to help us th- thread this needle is um, Christopher Columbus. I mean, Christopher Columbus appears in every chapter of the book um, as uh, the the sort of uh, capitalist. I mean, sure that there was capitalism um, in Europe, particularly sort of propelled by Portuguese conquest um, before Christopher Columbus, but uh, Columbus is a really interesting figure in the way that he. Uh, talks about uh, you know, new frontiers to fix uh, the, the crises that are attending capitalism in Europe and in, uh, in the 1400s um, and we use him to, to uh, as the, the guy who uh, both you know inaugurates uh, a certain kind of colonial capitalism here in America uh, in the Americas uh, but also just in the way that he behaves he he uh, it, you know, demonstrates his sort of savvy capitalist awareness of why it is that each of these seven things needs to happen. So if you want to look at the the sort of first examples of uh, or early examples of each of these seven cheap things, uh, Columbus's diary is a very good place to go. Uh, And the idea of the frontier and of capitalism being and moving through frontiers, uh, the the idea there is to to observe that, uh, again, capitalism is always uh, a a spatial and ecological relation. Um, It's about relationships of, of power across um, space and uh, across time. Uh, and so uh, the, the frontier is an integral part of uh, of the, the, the way that, that the capitalism moves and requires uh, the constant new scooping out of new kinds of frontier. Um, and if, if this sounds very abstract, I mean, th- think about today's modern Columbus, um, Elon Musk, um, you know, He's a guy in many ways like uh, Christopher Columbus, in that he is someone who is uh, fixing crises of uh, of liquidity in his case, uh, and you know purporting to be a sort of great uh, herald of of new times, uh, but catching the, the the crises of capitalism here uh, by offering to colonize. And uh, he, he, he wants to colonize Mars, and he's very explicit about that. Jeff Bezos wants to colonize the moon. Uh, and in both cases, uh, what they want to do is create these brave new worlds in which free markets will um, will solve the uh, Various kinds of resource problems that we have created uh, down here on Earth, and offer new ways to uh, to to, to, to uh, either you know move away from the mess that we have made this planet, um, or provide the resources to help patch up some of those problems. Um, but the idea of the frontier then is uh, about this. Uh, you know the, the the sort of constant space in which the, the capitalism needs to scoop out and to to, to have uh, in order to be able to to take resources to take um, you know new bits of the web of life and use those to patch the crises that it creates in its hinterland uh and or you know that it's created elsewhere where it's 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 already eviscerated those resources
0: yeah um so you mentioned um Christopher Columbus that's one of a number of historical characters that show up some um uh well known like Christopher Columbus some um, some not as well known uh uh one one character that plays a pivotal role in the book is René Descartes um so could you talk about how Descartes uh you know how How he frames this um, uh, separation of nature from society, and how that's important in the book
1: yeah, so so th- this this nature society separation um, gets codified by Descartes in a way that's very useful to capitalists. Um, and uh, you know the the the, the kinds of operation and that the idea, but you know that the sort of separation between uh, thinking things between minds and uh, you know the, the the world of extension the the, the world of bodies um, th- that that separation becomes critically important because it, it's a, a, a philosophical license to exploit um, and when you have this uh, idea of uh, the, the domain of uh, the mind and the people who possess minds um, uh, versus, uh, you know, savages out out there in the world and the uncivilized uh, and the purely mechanical. Uh, then you you have a license to be able to say, well, you know, obviously the, these barbarians in the New World are precisely that—they're savages. They're part of nature. They're not really uh, humans in the way that we are. And you know, the the, the you know the early Spanish term for indigenous people is naturales, naturals, right? That so they're not humans in in uh, in important ways. They're not people. They're not part of society in an important. And this division between society and nature uh, is one that is, uh, one that's prosecuted, right? You need, a, 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 you need an army to, to, to keep uh, the savages at bay. I mean, one of the, um, the early sort of English phrases uh, is, you know, for, for things that are unthinkable and just uh, and savage and barbaric is to say that something is beyond the pale. Uh, and, you know, what one, you know that, that's a term, the pale, uh, is a, a term that the British uh, used in their first colony in Ireland, uh, that the pale was the fence that separated the, the, the civilized from the savage. And so to be beyond the pale is precisely to be uh, these uh, uncivilized, unsettled uh, uh, Irish uh, barbarians who had to have civilization brought to them, but until then they lived beyond the pale. Uh, now, that idea of again of society of who it is that 's in society and who it is that 's outside isn't, it, is policed not just with fences but with guns and with legislation and um, what you see uh, in, in the way that, that we can think of all history being the history of class struggle is precisely uh, how it is that people resist being part of of the savage and you know the, the category of being savage uh, and so increasingly you have. Well, you know, working class white people being admitted, and then uh, you have uh, you know then you have laborers of color, and then you have women being admitted into this domain of uh, possibly civilized. Um, You know, often and still today, indigenous communities find themselves on the other side of that. Um, You know, I mean, here in the United States, for example, um, uh, my my, my children uh, recite they recite. Uh, the the Pledge of Allegiance, uh, in which uh, everyone is reminded that this is one nation under God. Uh, And that, uh, of course, is wrong even by um, the the very narrow definition of the federal government, where there are over 500 federally recognized nations in the United States. But you are made to forget, children are made to forget every day uh, that indigenous people exist on this land, uh, because that's the kind of policed amnesia that you need in order to be able to uh, again, uh, maintain this division between uh, the civilized and the savage, and the, which allows, even today in, in the Supreme Court, a very interesting series of cases around uh, whether... Uh, indigenous people are indeed entitled to their land under treaty, Um, and uh, you know, the the, the only way that that becomes a a, a conscionable argument to have in the first place, when obviously the the treaties are there and they need to be respected, but the only reason that that it becomes thinkable to to abrogate those treaties is because maybe they're not actually humans in the way that we are, they're not actually civilized in the way that we are, Uh, and therefore, um, you you know, this sort of colonial idea of policing the division between society and uh, and the savage, uh, is something that, that exists even to this day. And again, the license is something that, uh, philosophically René Descartes, uh, helped put the infrastructure in for.
0: Yeah. Uh, great. And, and again, um, you know, I think this, the, the way that you guys have put these, you know, complicated ideas together is very accessible. And I think I mentioned uh, a little earlier that I do assign this book, uh, to my undergrads for that exact reason. Um, so do you have any thoughts about how, uh, this book as a whole or parts of this book could be employed in the classroom?
1: I mean, uh, the, the, the joy of this is, uh, once a book comes into the world, it's never entirely clear how it is that, that it does get used. Um, but you know, we've, uh, I've been, uh, Approached by high school teachers who've been using it um, for 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 their you know eleventh and twelfth graders, which um, has made me very pleased. Um, but uh, the, you know, we we've tried to make it uh, available so that. Uh, you know uh, the the first chapters already available for free uh, on the um, on the University of California web, uh, Press website, um, and in general, we're you know whether it's through the sort of you know the the, the viral YouTube clip or whether it's um, through uh, supplementary teaching materials that, that that are sort of circulating online, um, we've we've tried to make it as as open as possible for folk to, to come into it, whether they're coming from environmental history or sociology or um, you know sort of studies of food. Um, uh, We we found that this has been taught in food systems classes uh, in a range of places as well, because uh, ultimately uh, what we've been trying to do is precisely show how food and money and capitalism and energy are all linked together. Uh, And so you know we've we've tried to make this as, as multifaceted as possible so that um, you know in in the hands of whatever instructor uh, cares to hold it up to whatever light that they that they've chosen um, enough gets refracted through that, that, that's of, of use to, to to that classroom so we you know've we've, we've tried to in, in, in keeping it simple and keeping it multidimensional, dimensional we've, we've we've hoped to be able to uh, use it in everything from you know a year long or uh, you know a semester long course just on this book and its references to something that gets tossed in. Uh, a supplementary reading uh, in 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 any given week and we 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 found it works you know in in any of uh, any of many ways
0: yeah exactly and 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 it's uh essential i think for teaching the history of labor in the united states and um i've been using it for for that purpose um so you know towards the end of uh the book you begin to give um some uh, solutions to to the problems that that you describe in in the rest of the book, and you um call these solutions uh reparations ecology and and there's multiple parts to this, but would you mind describing this reparations ecology
1: well i mean we were um light to be fair jason on on the uh, on the solutions in part because That wasn't the goal of the book. The the book was was meant to be diagnostic um, and showing that, uh, you know, crises in labor and race and gender are all attributable to to the sort of the the crisis of late capitalism that we're in at the moment. Um, But insofar as the the sort of cardinal sin of capitalism is this idea of the separation between society and nature, uh, what we wanted to do is... Uh, emphasize uh, as part of the, the sort of world world ecological approach uh, a way of thinking about humans in the web of life that seeks to recognize what it is that humans have done to the rest of the web of life uh, and in that way we wanted not merely to to have a sort of restorative approach but uh, one that emphasizes uh, a debt and a history and uh, that, that looks specifically at those ideas of Reparation, and so reparation ecology was, was our way of thinking about um, how humans uh, might uh, mend uh, some of the 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 the, 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 you know, the alienation uh, that capitalism has wrought on not not just our relationships with one another, but with the rest of the web of life. Um, but you know, we published this before uh, things like the Green New Deal uh, in in its U.S. Mani- manifestation came to light, uh, and. I mean, I've, I've certainly been struck by how uh, similar um, some of the ideas behind the Green New Deal and some of the, the things that we were looking at in, uh, in you know, in, in thinking about uh, reparation ecology was now obviously uh, the original New Deal was a way of managing labor crises, right? It was a way of for the U.S. not to um, give up on a capitalism that it held. Quite dear, you know, in a time in the late 1920s and early 1930s, where there was no good functioning model of capitalism anywhere in the world, uh, and where uh, the US was in open rebellion, and where the labour movement was strong and getting more and more powerful, uh, and so you know, there's a way of saying, well, the New Deal was really just a you know a, a, a patch, a fix, another fix in, uh, in in the history of capitalism to these crises of labour. But there's another way of reading uh, the Green New Deal uh, and and the original New Deal, which is as a constant process of labor struggle uh, that carries on through the 1940s and which has been fought back ever since. And if you think of the Long New Deal as the the process that begins uh, far before 1929 uh, and carries on really to the present day, you can see uh, the rise and fall of militant labor activism that demands and dreams a a different kind of planet and a different kind of world. Uh, And the Green New Deal, uh, to my mind at least, and I oughtn't to speak for uh, for Jason Moore on this, but uh, to my mind, um, the Green New Deal is something that offers a way of, of... you know, of humans re-embedding uh, ourselves in the web of life in a way that acknowledges the harms that we've done in the past, uh, and that in particular prioritizes uh, oppressed communities, uh, that that tackles patriarchy, that talks about um, histories of slavery and genocide in the in the United States, and talks about our debt, uh, you know, to, to, to the rest of the planet. And I like that idea, uh, that 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 much more radical approach, um, that you know, that seeds of which one can read in. The Green New Deal. I mean, you know, you can also find some uh, rather straightforwardly, boringly nationalist uh, interpretations of the Green New Deal. But I'm not interested in those. And I, I think that if you look and th- read the, the the promise of the Green New Deal as it's um, been instantiated, um, which you can see in um, you know the the 15 pages or the, the 14 pages of the, the Green New Deal uh, resolution, uh, you can you can see something that looks like. That, that looks reparative, uh, that, that emphasizes the work of care and the work of repair, uh, and that is, um, that, that insists on a different, a, a very radically different way of managing our relationships together so that we can, uh, you know, w- work towards a, a planet that, uh, that manages the, the, the climate catastrophe, uh, as opposed to doubles down on it.
0: So, um, you know, that was actually a little different than my reading of the book. Um, so, I, from what I took from your answer, you believe that there are solutions to our current ecological crises that can be um, implemented inside of a, a, a capitalist economy, or there are market based solutions to these problems. I don't think
1: that. Um, okay. I, and I think that that's, Sorry. I mean, and, and again, I mean, I, I think if you look at the Green New Deal, um, it's it fudges the question of what sort of economy it is that that is required in order to make it happen, um, and I do you know both Jason and I are, are fairly um, you know I mean we have a pessimism of the intellect and an optimism of the will when it comes to thinking about uh, how it is that we you know we we see the future I mean we see the uh, the, the arrayed forces of capitalism and see them ascend and see them doing very little to address the the, the crises that we're in. Um, and yet, uh, you know, and we see, therefore, the rise of fascism and uh, as a way of managing these crises in capitalism. Uh, and fascism uh, does, uh, you know, in, in this moment, uh, looks like a better bet for capitalists than liberal democracy. And so, and so you know, the, you can still, and it's important to remember this, it's still possible to have uh, fascism and, and uh, the, the basis of capitalism happening at the same time. Um, so th- that's not something that, that we're uh, we're thrilled about um, and uh, and I think you know it, it is interesting to see the, uh, the, the that they uh, you know in country after country uh, experiencing you know climate crisis um, you, you are seeing you know the bolsonaros um, uh, you know, addressing the, the, the multiple you know sort of crises of, of capitalism uh, by by Precisely doubling down on on the climate catastrophe and uh, you know the war on indigenous people and the war on labour. Um, uh, so yeah, I mean Jason and I aren't you know are very are very clear that that we're not hugely hopeful. Um, but insofar as something like the Green New Deal uh, offers a revolutionary transformation, uh, I think that that's something I'm quite excited about. But I, I think, you know, you, you have to you have to see it as precisely that. it is It, it does need to be revolutionary. It, it can't be sort of uh, a, a half-baked solution.
0: Yeah, great. Well, you know, we could talk about the future for, for quite a long time, but we've already been talking for, for quite some time. So uh, maybe I'll just finish up with one last question. Um, what's uh what's next for you what's the next project that you're going to embark on
1: well I, i'm I'm finishing right now um a, a a project that's about uh the uh the climate crisis uh, driven by uh, a lot of the, uh, the the work that i've been doing um with peasant movements um particularly in the global south and so the the, the story it's, it's a documentary project um filmed uh or at least you know helmed in part by uh, the director of Hoop Dreams, um, sort of a classic American documentary that I, in fact, studied uh, when I was at Cornell as, as part of our methods class. We were, we were told that this is this is what good sociology looks like, where as a, a researcher you show your work to the, the people that you're uh, purporting to represent, and you you have them give feedback, and you give them space in their own words to, to guide the narrative. Uh, and we've been trying to do that with a project uh, that's taken a good seven or eight years to film. Uh, And it's uh, about uh, how peasants in Malawi have battled patriarchy. Um, In fact, you know, drawing on a project that Cornell professor Rachel Besner Kerr has been working on for decades. Uh, and so we're showcasing some of that work, but then, uh, the activists in Malawi said, well, look, you know, climate change is the thing that we're really up against. We want to come to America to persuade Americans that climate change is real and they need to be taking it seriously. And so we, you know, on a wing and a prayer and a credit card, uh, brought everyone over, uh, Filmed them traveling in the United States, trying to persuade farmers uh, and others uh, about the reality of climate change and then uh, followed the story uh, as as it, you know, as it proceeded to make a a sort of final arc. Now, that that documentary project will be out in uh, 2020. um, And I'm excited about it because it offers a way of talking about. Uh, the you know the, 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 the science that is flourishing in farming communities and in peasant communities that offers a real chance for tackling systemic problems like patriarchy and like climate change um, in ways that, that that are very real and that, that offer very concrete solutions um, and that are you know anti-systemic in in ways that matter. Um, so yeah I, i'm I'm excited about that and that that, that that's the big project I'll, I'll be I'll be trotting out next year and w- what
0: was the title of that?
1: Well, we're still working on a title, okay, um, right. but uh, we'll uh, yeah, you expect to, to, to see that um, launched. I mean, you know, at the moment, it just languishes under the, the, the title of Generation Food Project. So um, if people want to know uh, what it ends up being called, you can go to generationfoodproject.org.
0: Okay, great. Yeah. And, and we'll keep our eyes out for that. And uh, I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed talking with you
1: the pleasure was mine, Jason. Thank you so much. And thank you for, for teaching this book. We're very, very grateful.
0: Yeah, thanks. Take care.